Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, we're welcome, uh, welcoming Amped Blend, Roan County, down in Bearden. Good morning to all y'all. Hey, uh, you can open your Bible if you have it or your journal to Exodus chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. But quick note before we get there, you will not need to bring this journal back with you next weekend. Starting next weekend, we're going to do uh, June and July, working our way through the Gospel of Mark, talking about what does it mean for us to be people who demonstrate good news in our life. In other words, people who are fluent in speaking the good news of the kingdom of God into the world. And so we're going to be looking at that. And hopefully you're going to be like, okay, well, wait, 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 wait. Why are we leaving Exodus? What we're trying to do is draw the links together. And it's going to be just in the first week, in the first 15 verses, two rivers. In the first 15 verses, you're going to be like, oh, it's Exodus. In just the first 15 verses, it's right there. Now, the only way you're going to know that is if you've been doing your homework. All right? So, here's that. If you're visiting with us this weekend, we're glad you're here. This, this is now, if Two Rivers is your church home, here's the deal. Okay? If you opted out of uh, Live It Out during this series and you didn't make it all the way through the book of Exodus, that's okay. That's fine. But you got to go to summer school. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm going to get real honest with you. We are going to treat you like grown-ups, like adults. You can listen or read to a whole book. You can do it. You can do it. You can. You can do it. So if you didn't do it during the school year, it's time for summer school. And so you have two months to get all the way through it so that when we come into August, and we're back in the book of Exodus, we're going to talk to you like you know the whole book. We'll raise the bar. Why? We're word-dependent people. And we can't say we're word-dependent if we don't know what the word says. That doesn't make any sense. So that's, that's your summer school, right? If you didn't do it the school year, summer school. Now, if, if someone were to ask you, this weekend we're going to talk about heroes, and, and the thing we're going to talk about, we've talked about before, we, we've talked about over and over how God is the hero of his story, and we use that, that phrase, the hero, uh, started, uh, I do my research like you do your research, Google, and uh, on Google, if you search it, just figure out, like real quick, what's a hero, you'll find out everybody has a different view of what a hero in a story is. There's different types of heroes, there's different patterns of heroes, and so you can't just say a hero is. And so I have to define that word. In other words, uh, when we're talking about God being the hero of his story, what are we talking about? We're talking about the, the person who the story is ultimately about, the, the, the word, the big fancy word protagonist, that, that it's the person who ultimately the story is about, but, but the person who rises above. And there's actually a, a type of story where that person is a supernatural being. Because God is the ultimate supernatural being who created all other spiritual beings, the story is about him, okay? He is the hero of the story. And we're going to talk about that because it's really essential to how we view the Bible. When, when, when you think about your story or something that's happened to you and you share your story with someone, how annoying is it if they, you're in the middle of telling your story, and they're like, oh, yeah, I did that once. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I had that experience. 
oh yeah, I, I, and they, they take your story and they make it about them. That's annoying. Nobody, nobody wants that. As followers of Jesus, we do that to him all the time. All the time. Just like going to God's word and be like, God, I just need something. Can Give me something. I, I, I can't get outside of myself long enough to realize that when I do that, I take God out of the center of the story. I serve me into the center of the story and be like, God, just help me because I'm so consumed with me. I can't get over me. And, and whatever I have going in my life is so overwhelming. I can't possibly get outside of that. God, just come into my story and say, wait, let me lift my eyes, see God's story and, and get out of my story. And join him in what he's doing in the world. That's a biblical worldview. And often what we do is we invert that. And we think about, okay, God, how can I get you to fit into my paradigm? How can I get you to fit into my story? And so uh, this weekend, okay, here's, here's the takeaway. We've talked about how Yahweh is the personal name of the covenant God of the Bible. It's a personal name. Yahweh is the hero of the story. Now, We've been through the first four chapters of Exodus, and you're going to go to summer school to catch up if you, if you haven't been, but if you've been through the Live It Out, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, as we pick back up in August in the book of Exodus, okay, and we'll tell you, we're going to pick back up. If you just take away one thing from this first four chapters, and you're like, okay, one thing that I need to remember going into the next series, it's this. Yahweh's the hero of the story. That's it. It's victory. If you can remember that one thing, Yahweh's the hero of the story. Not Moses, definitely not Aaron. If we've read ahead, not the children of Israel. Ultimately, Yahweh is the hero of the story. That's true in Exodus. That's going to be true in the Gospel of Mark. It's true in Revelation. Yahweh is the hero of the story. He's the, he's the hero of his story, and he can be the hero of our story. That's his goal, is that he would be the hero not just of his story, but he would be the hero of your story. That he would be the hero of, of what's going on in your world. That's what he made us for. That's what he made us to be in relationship with him for. That we would ultimately point people towards him. That's what we're going to see today. So as we pick up here in uh, chapter 18, I mean in <laughs> verse 18 in chapter 4, we've been through the burning bush episode where uh, Moses has had an encounter with Yahweh. He's had an encounter with, with um, the burning bush. Ultimately, the, it says the angel of Yahweh, that, he, that it's Yahweh himself has revealed himself through the burning bush to Moses. As, as they've come out of that conversation, we pick up here in verse 18. It says, now Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And Yahweh said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And Yahweh said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And we're going to pause here for a second. We're going to underline a couple things. Go back up there and and where it says uh, Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Underline that. Um, We're not going to talk about that, but that's going to be significant when we come back to the book of Exodus. When when it says um, that Moses, uh, that he he said, hey, I do all the miracles I've put in your power, underline that as well. We're not going to talk about that today, but that's going to be important when we come back to the book of Exodus. The one that we are going to talk about today, and you're going to highlight, underline, star, and exclamation point in the margins is Israel is my firstborn son. Now, Yahweh's son is being held captive in service to the king of Egypt. Remember, we've talked about how Pharaoh, that's, that's, that, that's uh, talking about the household. It's talking about, like, it's like saying the White House. It became to n- known as the administration of the king. And so when it's referring to Pharaoh, it's talking about the administration of the king. What we're really talking about here is the king of Egypt. And the kings of Egypt believed, and the Egyptians believed, that their kings were, were gods in, embodied. They, they worshiped multiple gods, and, and the king was, was the, the physical representation of one of those gods. And so the stage is being set. It, 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 God's people, the God of the Bible, the, the children of Israel, were being held captive by another little G God. We could refer to that. That they were serving a little G God. So you see that this is a spiritual battle that's building. The, the battle is being set. It's not just between um, the Yahweh and a king. No, it's between Yahweh and, and a spiritual forces of darkness kind of thing. The stage is being set for a, for a real spiritual battle. And now uh, the story gets bizarre. When we were laying out this series... I looked at this passage and I'm like, man, I'm so glad Dave Nichols is going to get to talk about this. That's great, man. I can't wait to see what Dave Nichols does with this. And then I realized, you know, like Dave Nichols' daughters play softball and uh, the Farragut Admirals go to the state tournament and he's out and I'm in. And I'm like, that's so funny. (laughs) This brings one of the most seemingly random and strange stories in the Bible. At a lodging place, on the way, Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then the story, we're going to pick up here in a second. It just keeps going. Like, not on this. This is just it. This is just this episode. Boom. That's it. Now. If you have done the live it out, you remember way back six weeks ago, back when you were excited about the book of Exodus, you probably got to this verse and then you probably hit the ditch because you're like, how am I? What do I do with this? And so here's just a good Bible study principle, okay? Here's just a good Bible study principle. Don't let challenging passages be a distraction. Don't get distracted. Don't miss 
the grand story because you hit something that's a little bit confusing along the way. You hit something that you don't understand. Now with that, I'm not saying to ignore it. I'm saying come back to it. Get a study Bible. Look, get some resources. Do some research. Yes, absolutely. Dig into it if it's really puzzling to you. But don't get derailed just because you come to this and you go, I'm not sure what it means. Because guess what? Nobody is sure what it means. It's another one of those. Yeah, I know you're tired of it. Really smart people don't know. This is one of those passages that's it's a mystery. And yet, we can have some view of it. Okay, we, we, it, but it, you need to know that it's all conjecture. It's all theory. It's all based on how do we piece together what's going on here within the grand story of what's, what's going on. I, I listened to a, an hour-long podcast on just these verses to get to the end of that hour and go, but in the end, we really don't know. The guy was really smart. Referring to all these commentaries from really smart people. And yet they come to this place where they don't know. So we, we are going to talk about this. We are going to give you a principle from it. But, but to pretend like this is the meaning would be lying to you. So picking up in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of Yahweh with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. And we'll remember back that Moses had said, God, they're not going to do that. I'm going to go and I'm going to say that Yahweh sent me, but they're not going to believe me. And God said, no, they're going to believe you. And here we see that they what? They believe. So remember this, okay? If you're just going to walk away with one thing, Yahweh's the hero of the story. Sometimes as we're going through a story like Exodus and we'll see a character pick up, I'm not saying that that Moses is insignificant when I say that. Moses is a significant character within God's story, but he's not the hero. He's not somebody to aspire to be like. And often what we do is we don't know what to do with the Bible, so we just moralize it. We just try and be like, okay, uh, uh, the good qualities of the characters in the Bible, I should be like those good qualities in their lives. And that is not the point of the biblical text. The point of the biblical text, and I would argue with anyone, and I do, who says, well, you know, no, 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 no. It's not about moral lessons. It's not about being good moral people. We will be. We will be a transformed, good moral people if we embrace following Jesus. But ultimately, it's so that we can know the God who has revealed himself through the scriptures. And that's why it's really important. We're like, okay, what's this teaching me about who God is? And the question that we constantly ask ourselves is, what does it mean for a follower of Jesus today? The story of Exodus is huge. In case um, you've missed it along the way, it's really huge. As we go to the Gospel of Mark, we'll continue to emphasize exactly how huge it really is. 
Some of you have, have connected the dots. It's been so encouraging to hear those, those of you who've been playing along at home going, oh, wow, I, I read the New Testament different. I understand it different because I, as we've been going through the book of Exodus, I see that, that God's story is far more relevant than I ever thought that it was. Now, we're going to spend just a couple minutes here on this really bizarre thing. And I want to tell you straight up, parents, if you got a kid with you, we're going PG-13 because this passage is PG-13. In case you missed it along the way, it gets worse than circumcision here in a second. Um, it's odd. So, so this, this is some kind of apparent judgment that's coming on Moses from God before he goes to Egypt. There's some kind of apparent judgment where Moses' life is out of alignment. So what is it out of alignment? Well, in Genesis chapter 17, God had, had established a relationship with Abraham and a way to demonstrate that relationship that, that um, he had said to, to Abraham that all of your offspring, all of the male offspring are going to be circumcised. That's going to be the mark that they belong to me. Now, there were other nations around them. They practiced the same kind of things, but, but people did it different. And the Egyptians had a different type of circumcision called partial circumcision. You can look that up on your own. And, and exactly how that works, we don't know for sure. But, but the questions that arise around this text are endless. What exactly? And, and really, the, the text doesn't help us out a lot. Uh, Bible translators try to because it's actually even more confusing than it appears on the surface because we don't even know when Sephora took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it is what it really says there. Your Bible translator inserts Moses' feet, but it could be the son's feet or it could be Moses' feet. And so then what is the feet and what's the significance of that? And, and now here where we're going, PG-13, pull your kids' ears. Uh, the feet in the Old Testament, and I'm going to go, so I'm not going to build the case for it, but the feet in the Old Testament, I believe the case is compelling that when, when the biblical author in the Old Testament is talking about feet, they're talking about private parts, okay? That's what they're talking about. And now when you read the book of Ruth, that's going to read different. When you read some other, some other places, it's going to read a little bit different because that's what's being said. We have the same kind of euphemistic language. We just say legs instead of feet. And so what, what is it? And, and this is the best case that I can come up with, that there was, a, there was some way that Moses was out of alignment with the covenant of circumcision with God. And before he could go represent God's people, he had to come into alignment. And yet he was going to be put in the ditch for a long time before he could continue the journey. And so he has a wife who's a Midianite. And, and there's a theory out there that says the Midianites were worshipers of Yahweh, if you look way back at their descent, and that she would have understood that she needed to marry a, a circumcised male, that, that Moses was outside of the covenant with Yahweh. And so in order to bring him into the covenant, she does a ceremonial act. She intercedes. Once again, Moses is saved by a woman in the beginning of God's story. This has been a theme this has happened over and over again, and she's named. She intercedes on Moses' behalf. She circumcises his son and touches Moses in his private parts. Okay, there you go. That's what happens. And God says it counts. 
It counts. So now go and represent my people. Now, what do we take away with that? Here's, here's the thing. When we read a text like this, we're like, okay, there's something going on there. There's something important. It's not in there just for no reason. How Moses follows Yahweh matters. Not just that he would follow, it's how he follows. And the principle for us is still the same. How we follow Jesus matters. How we follow matters. We can be good followers and we can be bad followers. That's just the way that it is. I remember talking to a, a person in, uh, he's a missionary in another country with Muslims. And I'm talking about like everybody in America thinks Muslims are great Muslims. The majority of Muslims are bad Muslims, just like the majority of Christians are bad Christians. Okay. Just the way that it is. Just the way that it works. Like, like how we follow Jesus matters. And it appears this way for Moses. Now in the Exodus story, there's a, there's a showdown that we've talked about already, that the stage is being set for this showdown between the king of Egypt and Yahweh. And Yahweh has taken a group of people and he has set them apart. They are currently under the service of a, a bunch of foreign little G-gods. And he's going to reestablish that covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And he has called his firstborn son to worship him, to serve him. That's the same kind of concept, okay? Their act of service was slavery to the Egyptians. Their act of service to Yahweh was going to be worship, that they would be his representatives in the world. And we know that because we've read ahead in the story. And we know that when they come to the mountain of God in, in Exodus chapter 19, that, that Yahweh tells Moses this. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That means um, you'll be my intermediaries and my people set apart. You'll be a people group that are interceding for other people. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the why behind God's action. That, that he has brought his people to to worship him and be his representatives to the world. Now we're going to focus in here on this phrase, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. There's so much in this passage, okay? Uh, we're just going to focus in here to try and give you a link so that you would be like, okay, Dave, you said that this thing links together, but now I actually believe you that this thing links together. We could talk about so much in this story. There's so much there. And we'll come back. We'll, we'll refer back to the staff. We'll refer back to some things. But, but ultimately, I want you to be able to connect the dot between the firstborn son, who is the children of Israel, and us. And so this week in sermon meeting, it was like, I wrote that on the board. It was like, okay, um, son of God. I wrote that phrase, son of God. And uh, I think they thought I was trying to trick him. I really wasn't. I was just like, hey, let's just brainstorm. Where do we see the son of God in the Bible? And uh, underlying that, I'm like, okay, well, son of God, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you, you should get the first one. The first one should already be on your mind, right? I'm like, okay, son of God, who already sees son of God? And they thought I was going to trick him. And when you think you're getting tricked, what does everybody do? They said nothing. I'm like, well, Jesus, 
Come on, and, and where else? Like, where else do we see the Son of God? We see it back in Genesis referring to spiritual being, the sons of God. We see it uh, referring to the kings when it's talking about sons of God. We see it referring to um, the nation of Israel. Here in Exodus, we see Hosea talk about the same thing, that, that Israel is the firstborn son of God. And so this term is used to designate special agents of God's will and the recipients of his love. This is, this is the first time that God is talking about a nation or a people group as he being father and they being his son, that this is about a group of people. And that phrase, son of God, it's not about whether or not um, you're male or female. That, that's not what that phrase is referring to. In fact, uh, I was asking my daughter this week, I was like, I test a lot of stuff on her. And I'll be like, okay, well, if I say son of God, and I were going to say to you, you are a son of God, would that be confusing to you? And she's like, actually, no, it just means I'm a child of God, right? I'm like, yeah, you passed the test. Woo! That's what it means. It's not referring to male or female. It's saying that you are the representative of God in this world. That, that um, the metaphor of sonship demonstrates relationship. It's a relationship between Yahweh and his people. So it's significant. And, and we, we need to see that the biblical story then goes on a progression that it builds over time. That The biblical story, it, it begins with, with Adam, right? That, that Adam is the first created. And then you have Abraham who's set apart as a special person to to be the first of a people group that becomes the Israel. Eventually, they become the people of God. And then we see the Davidic kings. That, that, that's actually a word. Um, Davidic kings, it's those who are in the line of David leading to the Messiah, who is Jesus, the promised king, the ultimate promised king, all the way to us. There's a pattern. Then when it refers to the Son of God, it's talking about those who represent God in this world. Um, the future king, right? It, it, the one who's going to sit on the throne is Yahweh in the flesh. Remember, we talked about that along the way. The, the, the God who reveals himself through the burning bush, who, who reveals his name as, as I am who I am. I will and really think, think of it this way. Um, I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I will be with you. I created everything. I'm the God who is. And you're like, that's what his name means? Yeah, all of that. All of it. Which? All of it. I'm the God who's with you. It's revealed as the promised deliverer of the children of Israel. Is Yahweh puts on flesh and becomes a man, the ultimate fulfillment. And because of him, we too now can be adopted into his family. You see, we are also connected to Yahweh as sons. All of us who have life in Christ are connected to Yahweh as sons. And now here's the thing. It's metaphor. Okay, it's metaphor. Are we sons of God and daughters of God? Yep, we're that too. Are, are we collectively the children of God? Yes, we're that too. Are, are we um, people who've been purchased by God and belong to him? Yep, we're that too. When we trace these threads, what we see is that, that God's children are far more than just like a bunch of little kids that, that have a, a great daddy in the sky who will do stuff for them. 
And unfortunately, we kind of reduce this idea of being the children of God to that. We kind of reduce, like, I, I have a daddy in the sky, and he's going to take care of me, and it's all good. And that is not what the metaphor is. If we trace it back here and we trace it to my firstborn son who is Israel, who was set apart to be my representatives to the world, it's not just so that you'll have a daddy who takes care of you in the sky. It's so that you would represent the God of the universe to the world. And so it's really important that we would understand that it's far bigger than what we think. Now, it helps us to understand um, the New Testament authors when they write things. When we have this in mind, when we understand that Israel is the firstborn son and that we now are also sons, when, when Paul writes to the church in Rome, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He uses both there. He's like, hey, we collectively, men and women, we collectively, we are sons of God. We are children of God. He just keeps the metaphor flowing. We've been adopted into God's family. This is our story. For all of those who have new life in Christ, this is our story. So, as his representatives to the world, as his kids... He writes to the church in Galatia, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. By believing God, we become adopted into his family. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, offspring, sorry, heirs according to promise. This is the church. This is who we are. As we follow this thread through the biblical narrative, the only place that we can arrive is in the place of saying that now collectively, all of those who are in Christ, regardless of the people group you were born into, no matter what your, your birth heritage is, no matter if you're a man or a woman, that all of those who are adopted into God's family are now the ones who are actually connected back to that Genesis 12 promise to Abraham that you will be a father of a great nation, that you will be a blessing to the nations. We're, we're connected. That's us. And then as we, we looked in last fall, as we went through Revelation, we remember that, that that's just not something in the past. That's also something in the future. That, that it, we went through Ephesians, and we talked over and over about the spiritual realm and that we're already seated in the spiritual realm. And that's something that we have today, but it's also something that's going to carry on into the future. In Revelation chapter 3, when it says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also have sat down with my father on his throne, that there's going to be a joining of the people of God, the sons of God forever. 
where we will be people who are ruling and reigning with Christ forever. Just as the nation of Israel was set apart to worship as sons of the living God, we too have been set apart to worship. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes, he actually quotes two different Old Testament passages. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, we go, oh, that sounds like Exodus 19. I've heard that. I've heard that a few times. Exodus 19. He's just not making stuff up. The New Testament authors just aren't making stuff up. They know the story. They're weaving the story. And you're like, well, yeah, because the Holy Spirit is telling them what to write. Okay, if, if that's what you're, you're coming at, yes, the Holy Spirit isn't just riffing it. It's not like, oh, now we're going to go a new direction. He's tying it together. Yahweh is tying the story together that we would see that his purpose for the children of Israel is the purpose he still has for you that you would represent him to the world, that you would be his image bearer in this world, that you would be his son in this world. What's a son do? A son represents the father. You'd be like, well, not in our culture. Yeah, not today, but you have to read it from a biblical worldview that says the son in, in the days in which the New Testament was written, in the days in which the Old Testament was written, the son represented the father. That still happens in cultures around the world. In our culture, not so much. It's like, I'm going to do my thing. Family, I did it. My dad, my dad had a family business and cultures around the world to do what, what, what I did. Be like, I don't want no part of your family business. I'm going to go do my thing. That would be unacceptable in cultures around the world. Why? Sons represent the father. It's what they do. It's who they are. And guess what? This isn't just for the dudes in the room. This is for all of us. Men and women, our job is to represent the Father, not just to receive the benefits, but also the responsibility that comes with it. That's why he set us apart. And then he goes on to, to quote the prophet Hosea. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is linking together. He's quoting the law and the prophets. This is who you are. It's who you were always intended to be. And the reason, it comes down to this. It's the response we see of the Israelites here in Exodus chapter 4 as we come to this close of this little section of the narrative that Yahweh will be worshipped by the people he created to worship. He will be worshipped by the people he created to worship. That's true in the Old Testament. That's true today. So how do we become part of Yahweh's worshiping people? How do we become part of that? And the answer is, is only through Yahweh in the flesh, only through Jesus, only through us opening our eyes and recognizing that, that we need an intermediary to allow us to access a perfect and holy God. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul goes on to write, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We're adopted in. And the adoption metaphor carries with it that that in Roman culture, in the days in which Paul was writing this, they got the concept that if you were adopted as a son, male or female, we are adopted as sons into the family of God. It means you have all the rights and responsibilities as a natural born child. It's like you were born into the family. It's exactly the same. And you've been given the Holy Spirit to, to confirm in your heart that you actually belong to him. That you're now a son of God. You're now an image bearer of God. You're now his representative in the world. You now have a unique relationship with the God who created the world. And that comes by saying, God, I believe you. That Jesus is the only way back to you. That Jesus is the only way that I can have right worship with the God who created me to worship. That's it. Yahweh in the flesh is the only way that we can worship Yahweh. Now, as you think about this week and the live it out, as you, as you press into that, we want to encourage you, keep going. Man, if you made it this far, don't give up. This week, we're going to press all the way through the book. And um, yeah, those of you who didn't, summer school, those of you who did, go back. And if you feel like getting an A on the test, go back through the whole book. Listen to the whole book this summer. You're going to be on the beach. Put it on an audio book. Listen to the whole book. Why not? If you're here today and, and as you ask this question, am I son? Am I a child of God? It's the most important question you could ever ask. Am I a child of God? Now, we just read Paul write to the church of Galatians. He says, we've been given the Holy Spirit that cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. And so here's why I encourage you. If, if you ask this question, am I, God, am I your son? No matter, male or female, do I belong to you? Am I your child? If you get nothing, if you get dial tone, don't, don't overlook it. Don't, don't just pass by it. Because if you belong to him, the Holy Spirit will bring affirmation and confirmation. If you say, do I belong to you? There will be a, an inner voice. There'll be a, 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 all the different ways that we can experience God's communication with us. An overwhelming sense of peace or calm. A voice in your head. A sentence in your head. A word in your head. God, God are you real? Yep, I'm real. God, do I belong to you? Yes, you belong to me. If it's just nothing, then ask the next question. Go to the next place. It's the most significant thing that we could ever do. It's been since the beginning of the world. Are we walking with the God who made us to walk with him? And if you're not, why not today? Why not, why not right now? Why not say, okay, I, I believe that, that Jesus is the way for me to have a relationship with the God who created me to worship him. And so today I, I will submit my life. I will bend my knee. I will bow before 
the King of Kings. I will put my life into his hands. And so I'd love to give you a chance. I'm going to ask, no matter where you are in any of our venues, but here in live, go ahead and bow your heads. If you find yourself in that place, In John chapter 1, it says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you're in a place where you're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to become a child of God. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. You don't have to say it out loud, just in your heart. God, I confess that I have not submitted my life to Jesus that I have tried to do it my own way and I turn my broken life, the sin in my life, the rebellion in my heart over to you. And I believe that you will give me new life as one of your children and the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that I belong to you. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to tell somebody today. You can grab your bulletin on the front of it if you would, and there's a communication card. If you just put your name and on the back, just, I pray to receive Christ today. And for those of us who belong to him, there's a second question. It's to ask Jesus, how do I insert myself at the center of your story? And this is where we're going to reflect here for, in all of our venues, we're going to reflect here for a, a minute to ask Jesus this question. Where do I put myself at the center, not allowing you to be the center of my world? If he gives you just one thing, then as you walk out of whatever room you're in, go ahead and, and step into it this week. Let's ask Jesus that question. Ask Jesus, how do I insert myself at the center of your story? I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand. And as you do, I'm going to pray as we enter into worship. Father, we are grateful that you have provided a way for us to be connected to you, for us to be joined with you forever, for us to become sons of God, for us to be your kids. So now as we worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as we worship Jesus, would you be high and lifted up? Would you help us to worship you now by the power of your spirit? Amen.